He grew up in the oil fields of West Texas. He's been all over the Western Hemisphere, a radio and TV veteran, former restaurateur, and a cowboy at heart. He's Earl Farrell, and he calls Memphis home because Memphis is cool. This, this is the Earl Farrell for Memphis show, brought to you by Southern Security, your home team credit union, and by Kathy Thurman Edwards State Farm Insurance. And now, here's your host, Earl Farrell. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, welcome in on this uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, sun's shining, the birds are singing, but they're hot. They're hot. Those birds are hot out there. And they're going to get hotter as we move into the rest of the weekend. But it is summertime in Mempho, so that's what you're not getting an answer. Uh, let's, let me give uh, him a call on my phone. Maybe he doesn't know it's you. Uh, Colin, my producer, trying to call our first guest, and uh, he is uh, not answering, but a lot of times... You don't answer if you don't. I don't answer a phone if I don't know who the uh, who the caller is. So I can't blame him. Uh, let me call him and say, answer the phone. There's a ringy dingy one. Ringy dingy two. Hey, 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 Earl, I I cannot do this today. You can't. Okay, I'll. I'm so, I'm so sorry. That's okay. I'm so sorry. You bet. Bye. Okay. You can't do it today. That's okay. I know the story. <laughs> we don't need him. <laughs> Actually, we do. I've known uh, Trainer Jennings for a number of years. And uh, what happened was, and we all heard about the case itself. Uh, a 29-year-old man got kidnapped outside his house over off Highland uh, Tuesday. And uh, it just so happens that Trainer, who has been very vocal of late um, about potholes and the way the city's been run, the high crime. There's been putting a lot of stuff up on Facebook. Uh, and in fact, he's even been on uh, KWAM before talking about it. Uh, but uh, he said uh, a, a man who was uh, taking part in a pre-scheduled uh, ride-along with Memphis Police Department ended up being a witness to high-speed chase involving kidnapped suspects. Uh, Trainer Jennings spent the last several hours processing being in the front lines as an officer responded to a kidnapping along Philwood Avenue Wednesday evening. It was Wednesday evening. Said he hadn't slept, slept since Tuesday, Jennings said. I got emotional looking for, at all these uh, guys and, and girls that were there, and uh, they all came together to make uh, their lives uh uh, risking their lives to go catch uh, some bad guys. And he was in the car. They got the call and went after these guys. They ended up throwing the kidnap victim out of the car, ended up catching three of them. Two of them were juveniles. One was 18. And I think they're looking for one other suspect. Um, said they were arrested in kidnapping a man outside his home. It was in the morning. He was just out in his driveway. Drive up, throw him in the car and take off. Usually what they do is they take you to an ATM and get you to put your card in and take out as much money as you can get out. I think it's about 600 bucks per um, ATM. And that's a, kind of the usual um, motive. Uh, so they drove uh, by their house, and he said, I wanted to, to find the guy and give him a big hug, but didn't see him. But uh, he said, uh, if he's listening, and he may be listening right now to me, uh, trainer said they're glad everything turned out the way it is. We all are because uh, crime is out of control in Memphis and uh, something has just has got to, to happen to start uh, slowing things down because, uh, I mean, it's it, uh, I'm just looking at another story 
uh, two women got robbed, I think, on Mud Island. Uh, let's see. I saw that story a minute ago. MPD says a woman robbed at gunpoint. Another woman nearly kidnapped on Mud Island. Uh, this is, uh, according to WMC, Memphis Police Department was investigating one robbery and one attempted kidnapping that took place on Mud Island. On June 21st, officers responded to a call regarding a robbery near Harborview Drive and Harbor Isle Circle. According to police, the female victim was talking on the phone when she was approached by two men that exited a sedan. The suspects, both males, uh, surrounded her, and one of them pointed a gun at her head, demanding her phone. A similar incident happened later that same night, except the suspects attempted to kidnap the second victim. The second victim was walking eastward on Harbor Town Boulevard. A vehicle stopped abruptly in front of her, and the passenger door opened. Police say that the victim turned and ran away from the suspect's vehicle. A witness who saw the incident ran out to help the victim and also got a description of the suspect's vehicle. Uh, suspects were two males driving in an older model Honda Accord, according to the witnesses. Uh, so far, no arrest have been made in that. That was one of the things I asked Carol Coletta, who's with the uh, Riverfront uh, Development Partnership that's uh, redeveloping Tom Lee Park, and I asked her, I said, you know, the biggest concern that I'm hearing from a lot of people is just uh, the crime downtown. I mean, if you, you've got all these, you can't see the park from Riverside Drive anymore, and that's one thing people felt safer for because you could see it completely across the park. And there was no place to really to hide to jump out and rob somebody. And now it's it's uh, got a lot of hiding places, and you can't see the park from the road because of these moguls they built. Uh, she assured me that they're going to be built, putting in cameras uh, throughout the park that are going to be offering um, live monitored uh, cameras uh, for that uh, protection of the people down there. Uh, but Mud Island has really been uh, un- just, uh, under a siege almost recently. That Tug's restaurant down there where there was a big shootout a few weeks ago, out in front of that, and I talked to some people who live downtown, and they say they go to that restaurant, and you got these uh, people sitting outside at tables out in front of Tug's uh, openly smoking marijuana. So uh, it has changed a lot since the last time I ate at Tug's, I can tell you that. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, all over the place, just in driving and traffic. You see people doing crazy stuff. I will say this. I saw two Shelby County Sheriff deputies having people pulled over. Uh, one on um, Dexter near Germantown Road and the other one on Germantown Road. And then I saw an MPD car with somebody pulled over. And uh, and uh, then I talked to somebody else in front of mine and said he was in Bartlett or near Bartlett and he saw a car driving crazy through traffic and then there were, he noticed there were two unmarked cars, a smaller pickup truck and another on my car chasing that with their blue lights on. So uh, hopefully the the police uh, in the area are getting after it. If I was the sheriff, Chief uh, Bonner, or Sheriff Bonner, I would definitely, since the MPD doesn't seem to be able to pull anybody over anymore, as per the mayor or the police chief, uh, I would pull over anybody that breaks the law, zero tolerance. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, but until they start uh, sacking these folks up and putting them in jail, uh, we're going to keep seeing the kind of problems uh, that we've been seeing. Uh, speaking of traffic, uh, to give you a quick update on <clears throat> some accidents that are taking place out there. And I apologize for my sniffles. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether this front's coming in. 
this is debris on the road at I-240 East at uh, Perkins uh, Road. There's debris in the road. And then uh, Forest Hill Irene, there is uh, an, a construction. Uh, Forest Hill Irene, located between U.S. Uh, 72. Get a little construction there. But it looks like an accident, not a construction site. But let's, we'll see if it hit it again. Uh, well, it's saying construction work, but that's usually a symbol for an accident. So maybe somebody's mixed up at TDOT. It happens. Uh, and then more is coming out about the uh, about the Titan, the uh, sub that obviously imploded, uh, and they know that now. And it's just a tragic, tragic story. The uh, a lot of people who are experts on that, and we're going to have another one here with us uh, at 4 o'clock. Uh, we got Randy Wright, who's been really giving us great insight to all this. Uh, he's a, 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 with the dive shop and has been scuba diving all over the world, was even on an expedition to the Titanic a number of years ago. And uh, we were all afraid this, this is what would happen since it all that whole thing uh, just ended. All communication stopped. No beacons, uh, no uh, pings, and they had all these redundant communication uh, uh, capabilities, and all of it stopped at the same time. And that was why so many people feared the worst from the very beginning, and apparently that's what happened. I did talk, read another expert said that they probably, although it happened very fast once it did happen, they said that they now know that they were able to deploy some of those uh, weights that they had on the outside that would allow them to float to the surface but apparently it was too little and too late uh, that they probably did hear this uh, this um, uh, underwater craft starting to starting to break up uh, before they were able to uh, to try to get to the surface, which gave them uh, who knows seconds, maybe a couple of minutes before it actually imploded. But once that happened, it was extremely violent. Somebody said it was it'd be like eight nine sticks of dynamite blowing up. So once it happened. There was there was no lingering and it was over just in a, in a split second. It's just it's tragic, uh, but we'll talk more about that uh, coming up uh, uh, later in the show. We're gonna take a break right now and uh, we'll be back. Stay with us on this sunny Friday afternoon. Come on, let's get happy. I'd sing it, but I can't sing. <laughs> well, he asked me one time, he said, yeah, you've got a great voice. Can you sing? And I went, no. I sing all the time. It just sounds bad. I think it has something to do with carrying a tune. Uh, at any rate, uh, the guys that can carry a tune, Matchbox 20, will be uh, taking to the stage tomorrow night at uh, Live at the Garden, along with guest uh, uh, musician Matt Nathanson, who Ron Olson tells me is really, really good. Uh, the bad news is uh, it is a sold-out show, so if you don't have tickets, uh, you ain't going to get any. Unless you show up there and there's somebody just uh, has some. The other thing, too, is uh, put it up on Facebook. If you're looking for tickets, uh, you know, people at the last minute, things come up and they can't go. And I've known people that have gotten tickets to things uh, before that just put it up on Facebook saying, we're looking. If you got anything, uh, give me a call. But parking uh, is going to be at a premium, even if you have parking passes because it's a sellout so if you have tables and and the seated area you get parking passes but uh since it is a sellout the the lot's going to be jammed 
And if you could uh, carpool with somebody, uh, I would, they're advising doing it. Uh, but the parking in the box office opens at uh, 5 p.m. Gates open at 6, and the show starts at 7.50. Uh, those times are subject to change. Make sure you're looking over our know-before-you-go directions and parking pages for heading to the uh, Radiance Amphitheater. Uh, our concerts are always rain or shine unless it becomes dangerous, which it did last year at the Doobie Brothers, the lightning. Uh, they just called the whole thing off. Plus, it was a humongous downpour. Uh, but they'll be posting any updates on their social media page as necessary. During the inclement uh, weather and emergency situations, uh, please tune in to 90.9 FM for up-to-date information. Uh, so uh, go check it out. We'll be there. And looking forward to it. And uh, it should be a great show. If you've got a fan, I would bring it. Uh, I don't mean like a rock and roll fan. I mean like a battery-powered, put it on the tabletop or in your lap and have it blow on your face. It, It'll knock 10 degrees off. I've had one of those for years, and it really does make a huge difference in uh, in doing that. And then I uh, have another PSA. Uh, this was uh, Todd Starnes put out, is that the American Cancer Society is uh, in desperate need of volunteer drivers in the Memphis area for its Road to Recovery program, which provides cancer patients with free rides to their life-saving treatments. Uh, during the pandemic, it was necessary to suspend our, our transportation program for the safety of our cancer patients. It's now been three years, and our organization is working hard to rebuild its program in the local area. We've lost many of our drivers for a number of reasons, and we could really use some help to recruit new volunteers. Please consider the press release below for publication, blah, blah, blah. That's what I'm doing. But contact the American Cancer Society um, Media contact is Jeannie Natwick uh, at genie.natwick at cancer.org. And uh, tell them you want to help out. Uh, it's uh, really very gratifying. I know a number of people that take people to treatments all the time uh, for different things, macular degeneration. Uh, my sister in Texas uh, takes a woman that she just knows and knew that she didn't have anybody else instead of her taking a uh, – uh, Uber, uh, she picks her up about uh, every two or three weeks and t- drives her to her doctor's and waits for her because it takes a while to do this, then brings her home. And uh, for so many people, that they don't have anybody else. And I can't imagine, uh, I'm just fort- very, very fortunate if you have loved ones that take care of you when you're sick or you need uh, regular treatments and need somebody to, to go with. Uh, I remember we had a friend once who was going to go in for bypass surgery and he was going to take an Uber, and, and my wife goes, you're not going to take an Uber. <laughs> she got up, and I was doing a morning show at Channel 13, so I couldn't take him, but she got up, went, picked him up, and took him in. And he was in the hospital a couple of days, went, picked him up, brought him home because uh, all of his relatives lived someplace else, and nobody could be here for him. So consider that. That's, it would be a good thing to do, and uh, volunteers really do rule the the earth there's so many of them that do so many different things out there that the uh, people like the orpheum theater that's how they make it happen they have so many volunteers that work at live at the garden uh so it's uh uh really uh a, a must it's not just a nice then uh 
this is interesting. The U.S. median age reaches record highs. Americans are putting off having kids, and it, which it was true in my case. I mean, I was my late thirties before we had our first child. The downside of that, I think you're a much better parent as you get older. It's getting up off the ground when you play with them. You get up in your 40s and 50s and 60s, and then you start having grandchildren, and you're in your 70s, and it ain't like uh, grandpa's going to get out there and play uh, flag football with you. <laughs> once again, if I go down, I need somebody of substantial strength to put the old hand down to pull me up. But the U.S. population has reached a record high median age, according to the Census Bureau. Americans' median age hit 38.9 in 2022 as the country faces a rapidly aging population resulting from the declining birth rates. The New York Times reported that the medium U.S. age has steadily risen over from 30 in 1980 to 35 in 2000 and nearly 39 in 2022. Now, you start getting past that, and... Uh, it ain't going to happen. So, um, you young people, get busy. <laughs> Colin, you got a girlfriend? You got anything going? <laughs> yeah, I got a girlfriend, but I'm not married or anything yet. So, kids yeah. aren't, in, aren't in the options. No, I, I would wait until you develop the relationship a little bit more. <laughs> yes, I agree. Kid. I agree. But uh, I know that uh, my daughter is now 28. And uh, my son is getting married, in, uh, and she has, we have a grandchild, three years old with her. They want to have another one. And then my son just turned 34, and fortunately his fiance is in her early 20s. Uh, but I told him, I said, you know, it ain't easy being an older dad. And uh, if you wait too much longer, it ain't going to be easy for old granddad either. So, you know, uh, tackle that and uh, try to do something with it because uh, – uh, we had a reunion at uh, WREG this past weekend, and we were all talking about who has grandkids and who doesn't. And most of the people that uh, I worked with there years ago have grandchildren. Most of them are, are older, like in college and stuff now. And I said, how old are your grandchildren? I said, three. <laughs> I got one. He's three. And uh, But they are uh, great. It, it, people always ask you, uh, how do you like being a grandfather? It's great. It really is. Uh, the, you forget about so many things with your own children that you're so busy raising them at the time and working and uh, keeping up with all the, their activities. When you're a grandparent, you're able to kind of sit back and, and help take part in all of it, but uh, it's not as intense, and uh, plus you know what's coming. <laughs> it's got to get worse. <laughs> so... Chin up and start having kids out there, you young people. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then uh, we're going to come back. We've got uh, Randy Wright with um, the Dive Shop coming in at the top of the hour, along with a, a local chef that's uh, doing a lot to help inner-city kids find out there's a lot more to do in life than uh, go out and uh, become a professional ball player or a singer or entertainer. The culinary world is where it's at. We'll talk about that at the top of the hour. We'll be back. Now, back to the Earl Farrell for Memphis show, brought to you by Southern Security, your home team credit union, and by Kathy Thurman Edwards State Farm Insurance. Once again, Earl Farrell. 
And thank you very much. Welcome back. You saw in the news today where the medium price of a home in the United States is now almost a half a million dollars, like 489000 is uh, the average price of a home being sold these days. Uh, and that's the reason a lot of people, especially younger people, aren't able to get into a home now because uh, uh, you've either got to do a lot of uh, sweat equity, buy a home, do a lot of fixing up, or they're just so expensive. And uh, with the current economy, inflation, everything else, uh, a lot of people are uh, living with their parents, uh, you know, having to find other arrangements, uh, waiting to get married. Uh, so it's having an impact, but it's also having an impact on people who are married, who do have kids. If, if you, something happens, somebody has a health problem, uh, it can be devastating. And that's this next story. Uh, it's a family in Florida. And about a year ago, the husband uh, had to have uh, heart surgery, and so he was out of work for six months. And like so many people, if you don't have a job that uh, you get paid whether you work or not, uh, you may be able to stay out two or three weeks or maybe a month. But it goes past that, a lot of times you're just uh, you're not going to make any money. She was a teacher, special education teacher, but her what she made wasn't enough to support the whole family. But they ended up losing their home and moving in with some friends, uh, a friend, who the, the boys, there are two boys. One looks like he's about maybe 15. The other's about eight or nine. And they slept on the floor in the in this garage of this home. And the mom and dad had a small bedroom that they were living in. That was, that was their whole deal for about the last six months. And uh, last week, the mom gets the boys and they put them in the car and take them over there and they tell them to close their eyes. And this is the audio portion of this, but listen to it very closely. It doesn't make you just go, wow. Uh, this is our house. What is our new house? We signed the lease today. We move in on April 10th. This is our house. Oh. <laughs> Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> Are you overwhelmed? You get your own bedroom. We have a house. You know, you don't think uh, life impacts kids that they're resilient and they can take anything, but I think that was very obvious that uh, this young uh, fellow missed his house, missed having a room, missed not having that anchor that we all have. Uh, I can remember coming home. We didn't have a big home. We had a three-bedroom ranch-style house, um, and but it was home. Mom was there. Dad worked. Mom didn't. And uh, we'd get out of school, come home, have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My brother and I, and, uh, we'd watch the Three Stooges and have a big cold glass of milk. But it was home, you know, and, and not having that. It's got to be just... Uh, very, very tough. This this video has been seen by about 5 million people, and they have sent these people all kinds of stuff. And uh, their name, I heard the mom's name is Mallory Ellis, E-L-L-I-S. And if you just Google it, uh, you, there's the stuff all over it. And you really, you should watch the video too because it's, uh, just look up uh, family gets home and uh, small boy overcome with emotion. And watch it because it's very moving and it's uh, 
it does make you appreciate all the blessings you have and, and hope that you're never put in that situation. But in, to the credit of the mom and the dad, uh, they never gave up. And they said, we just keep plowing forward and, and, and hoping we can make things happen. The dad's working again, and the mom's, uh, they got a place. They leased a place. But that was a part that was tough. They, they couldn't even lease a place because of their credit because uh, they, he was out of a job for so long. And so, uh, you know, just uh, be grateful for everything you have. And, uh, and I know you are. I am every day, especially when you see things like the – the submarine that went down and those people all uh, lost those five people. Uh, speaking of that, uh, kind of what you hear the movie film director who directed the Titanic, James Cameron says the sub doom, uh, could have been prevented. It's a uh, cut number two. It's a case starkly today where, where the collective, we didn't remember the lesson of Titanic. These guys at Ocean Gate didn't because the, the arrogance and the hubris that sent that ship to its doom is exactly the same thing that sent those people in that, that sub to their fate. And I just think it's heartbreaking. I think it's heartbreaking that it was, it was so preventable. What he's talking about is that the uh, Titanic, and there's some, a lot of interesting uh, new video that's out a documentary on the Titanic is that the captain had been warned of uh, icebergs ahead, but instead of uh, going all stop, they were in fog and it was at night, so they couldn't see. He just kept uh, going at a high rate of speed because supposedly the Titanic was unsinkable, uh, as we see now. And there's another one out about the Titanic that I just heard about today. I haven't seen it yet. But it says that uh, the Titanic, Titanic can actually... Uh, been damaged or there was another the Titanic was being built in England another ship that would look just like it a sister ship had been damaged uh, in um, a collision with another ship they brought it back to port to be rebuilt but since they said it was the fault of the ship the insurance company said we're not going to pay for the damage and so they swapped the names of the ship and made uh, the Titanic this old one and uh, the new one that they were building, they uh, they called it the the other one because what they wanted to do is get rid of the ship that was damaged and collect the insurance for it. And they said that they had another ship that was standing by with almost an eyesight of the Titanic, and they were going to crash the Titanic into an iceberg and then have everybody get off board, get on this other uh, boat, and everybody be saved. The ship would go down because of an iceberg, and they could collect the insurance. Only the, the radio operator uh, miscalculated the location, and the ship that was supposed to pick them up was like 19 miles away. And by the time it got there, there was you know so many people had perished. Uh, you know, if you if I'd heard that story 10, 15 years ago, I go, Dad, it's not possible. But after what you see going on in our world today, with so many things that you, you go, yeah, I can see that happening. I mean, a couple of guys in a room going, here's how we're going to get our money back. And uh, so some people have to lose their life for for it. Well, you know, hey, uh, that's uh, I hate to say that, but anymore you just see things happening that uh, you just wouldn't have ever believed before. For instance, what's happening with uh, Hunter Biden now? I mean, you're sitting there going, "This is all happening right in front of us." Um, this is a uh, NBC is now actually covering uh, this bombshell news about the IRS interfering with Hunter Biden probe. Here's a soundbite uh, cut number three. 
House committee released testimony today from two IRS whistleblowers who say the DOJ, the FBI, and their IRS superiors improperly interfered with their investigation of Hunter Biden, who agreed to a plea deal this week. Garrett Haig joins us. Garrett, what do the whistleblowers have to say? Lester, these two senior IRS agents allege that the president's son received preferential treatment throughout the five-year tax investigation that resulted in two misdemeanor guilty pleas this week. In testimony released by a Republican-led House committee, the agents accused the DOJ and the FBI of slow-walking portions of the investigation to Hunter Biden's benefit, and that efforts by the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney leading the probe to charge more serious crimes were blocked. A DOJ spokesman tonight denied any such interference. One was Whistleblower also provided what he says are WhatsApp messages from Hunter Biden to a Chinese business associate from 2017, in which the younger Biden says he's sitting with his father, waiting on a response to a proposal, and that he and the then former vice president will make the business partner regret not responding. Now, NBC News has not yet confirmed the authenticity of that message. The White House tonight says President Biden has upheld his commitment to let this investigation proceed free of any political interference. Hunter Biden's attorneys have not responded to our request for comment and then you have this this is a democrat uh, representative brad sherman admits that hunter received preferential treatment for evading tax obligations cut 13. the washington times is a story in several papers this morning feds favored hunter biden in tax probe this according to an irs whistleblower who gave closed-door testimony it was released by the republicans on the ways and means committee yesterday quote I am alleging with evidence that DOJ provided preferential treatment, slow walks the investigation, did nothing to avoid obvious conflicts of interest in this investigation. This according to the whistleblower. Your reaction? Well, I think that uh, Hunter Biden is paying a price uh, for his uh, uh, non-compliance with our tax laws. Um, His name is there in the newspaper and of course, uh, He's subject to a plea bargain. Um, I would say in general, um, the uh, consequences for cheating on taxes, and I'm an old uh, CPA and tax lawyer, uh, uh, those, those consequences are softer than they should be. I don't think you change that policy just because someone is uh, the son of the president. Well, everybody else goes to the pen. Uh, just look around, ask some people. Uh, so is, is he paying a price? I don't think so. He was at the White House big gala for the Prime Minister of India the other night with his tuxedo on, big smile. Uh, everything's hunky-dory. I don't think it's over yet, though, because now CBS, NBC uh, are starting to report on it. And the fact that uh, nobody ever said anything about him doing business uh, with all these foreign entities uh, without getting the same uh, you have to be registered as a uh, foreign uh, negotiator, uh, an agent uh, for the United States, and he was not. And uh, that's what they sent Manafort, who's an associate of Trump, to prison for. So uh, we'll see. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah, this is, a, this is a story you're going to like. You dream at night. Some people don't don't recall their dreams. They say everybody does dream, and a lot of people just don't recall them. I, I do. I dream a lot. And uh, one of my reoccurring dreams is I can levitate, which is fun. I'm just I'm sitting around, and uh, people go, can you levitate? I go, yes, I can. 
And I could be sitting down, I'll just start rising up, and I could just kind of move about the place and come back down. And it's not like flying like Superman. I just kind of, in the sitting position, I just kind of rise up, move around the room. Uh, the other one I have is that I, I something's happening, and I cannot get my arms to move to stop whatever it is that, that you know, I, I'm not being really attacked. I just can't. It's like I'm trying to help somebody, and I can't. I can't get my arms up, and, and it's like slow motion, or they're really, really heavy. And um, so those are the two of the ones I have the most. And they said that of all the dreams humans may experience in deep sleep, a recurring dream may feel the most mysterious. And in some cases, the most terrifying dreams can vary greatly from person to person. The American Sleep Association knows that people, on average, experience three to five dreams every night. I don't. I, I think it, the only ones I remember are the ones I'm dreaming when I wake up. You know, and the other ones, uh, they're just gone. I uh, usually last between 20 minutes and 30 minutes in league because dreams tend to form when humans are in their deepest sleep, a.k.a. REM sleep, when your brain recharges overnight. Uh, most often, uh, people say they replay their trauma or fears in their replaying dreams over and over again. Often clients discuss feelings of helplessness, which is that part where I did where I couldn't raise my arms. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and that shows up being able to be heard, communicate, or fight back. I think I've had the one where I couldn't be heard, too, where you're trying to get warn people and nobody can hear you. And because so many people have these emotions, experts have been able to identify these exceedingly common reoccurring dreams. Number one of all is falling endlessly. I've had that before, but it's very rare. Um, Colin, have you had the, the falling dream? Yeah, that's actually one that I have quite often, Earl. It's Do you ever just hear? an endless feeling of falling. I mean, I feel like I've been dreaming forever, and it's just... I'm falling. And I don't it's frightening, right? It's very scary. Yes. Do you ever hit? Have you ever hit the ground? I've never hit. Yeah. No, it's just a, It's just like if Wake you're just in an just airplane for... <laughs> and just constantly falling out of the sky. I don't understand it. Well, that's because that is a real phobia you have in real life, obviously. Yes. And so you probably don't get near cliffs. Uh, no. Climb up a, a real high on tr in trees and that kind of stuff because yeah, you it's have a crazy. So that's a phobia. Uh, number two is being chased or attacked or being unable to defend yourself. And that was, uh, I've had, but it's more like I can't lift up my arms to be able to do what I need to do. Number three, reverting back to school, often decades after grace, uh, graduation. I don't ever dream back about any of the things that happened to me back in school. I say, I'm out of there <laughs> and I ain't going back. Uh, being unprepared for an important event or not having studied for a test. I think we've all had that where, you know, we got to get up and, and uh, speak in front of a big crowd or something, and you, you got nothing, <laughs> which never stopped me. I remember I gave a speech in college once on the, it was just a speech on an inanimate object, and so I, uh, I'm on my way to class, and I got, I, oh, I got a speech. I looked down on the floorboard, and I had a screwdriver, so I said, I'll give a speech on a screwdriver, <laughs> the versatility thereof, and made the whole thing up as I went along, got an A on that one. Uh, Flying uncontrollably. I, I could levitate, but I was in control. Arriving late for a crucial life event or appointment. Uh, I, I think I've had that. I think I've, I've been late for something, and, I, and there was nothing I could do about it. I, and there, couldn't, there was no phone, cell phone. There's no way I could tell people what was going on. Being stuck in an inescapable location. That would freak me out. 
I don't think I would like that. I've never had that one. Losing control of a car, I have not had that. And losing teeth. I think a lot of people, that, that's a fear they have is losing teeth. But it says there's a slew of surveys and studies linking these reoccurring nightmares to frequent case reports and treatment plans across the country. Uh, but they say that the new and recent research is still needed to gain a better picture of what haunts Americans' dreams most frequently, especially since data comes from children's stress-related observations. Regardless of which recurring dream you're experiencing, uh, the docs advise not to entirely ignore or dismiss them if they've been plaguing you for years. Some recurring dreams are worthy of more attention than therapy, the docs say. People with unresolved trauma that should be treated will experience an event in their nightmares, and people who sleep have sleep apnea may commonly dream of suffocating or drowning when in reality they cannot breathe, which the sleep apnea is. A lot of people, uh, if you go get tested for that, and have these computers they can hook you up to, and it tells you how often you're, you're breathing. And I did it, and it was like I was going like two or three minutes without taking a breath. A lot of people say I encourage some brain damage from that. I don't think so. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Stay with us. He grew up in the oil fields of West Texas. He's been all over the Western Hemisphere, a radio and TV veteran, former restaurateur, and a cowboy at heart. He's Earl Farrell, and he calls Memphis home because Memphis is cool. This This is the Earl Farrell for Memphis show, brought to you by Southern Security, your home team credit union, and by Kathy Thurman Edwards State Farm Insurance. And now, here's your host, Earl Farrell. And thank you very much, and welcome back, and... uh... We were just talking about crime a minute ago in Memphis, and it's been well established. One reason that our crime rate is so high is there's so many kids that are growing up in uh, single-parent homes, and heck, in some homes there are no parents at all, and then they don't have an uncle. That there's not a male figure in their world that uh, gives them a good example of uh, how to look at life and how to be, how to go out and treat people right. Um, with us in the studio right now is Chef Ernest Dickerson, uh, also Randy Wright with the dive shop and, and Brandy's also a great cook and Ernest is, is a bit of cook all his life. He started out 17 years old as a dishwasher at TGI Fridays down at the square. That's and, correct. Uh, I mean, my first job, I think I was nine, had, had a paper route before that I was mowing yards, but we came from general Randy, you always worked came from yep. a, a time when as soon as you could get out and we were able to do something to make money, bring home, you did. And uh, how did you get the job at Friday? Did you go up and knock on the door and say, I'm looking for work? No, actually, I uh, found myself, some of my comrades in the neighborhood were working out there. And And they were a little older, and they suggested that I come check it out, and I did. There was something about uh, the kitchen, though. I I always helped my mom get uh, food ready. I love food prep. And uh, having owned a couple of restaurants, there's something very settling and, and comfortable about a kitchen and the and prepping food and the smells and everything. And uh, is that what got you into cooking and just being in the kitchen? I think it was more of an adrenaline rush. You know, there's so many things to do, so many moving pieces, and so you got to be at a high level of energy exhibiting in yeah. order to, and that was me. Slow people don't make it the restaurant not business. Not at all, <laughs> not at all. Uh, you went on to 
at uh, work at Thomas Boggs, uh, who, of course, started uh, Huey's. Culinary career at uh, Maui High, Anchorage, uh, Arkansas, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, graduated New England Culinary Institute in 2002. Sous chef St. Jude for five years. Participated in numerous fundraisers and nonprofits geared to youth and development and community building. Uh, a monogram. Uh, loves kids five plus years. Fake. Uh, cares five plus years alpha omega veteran services and uh, and currently employed uh, the knowledge quest greenleaf learning farm and uh but you've always cooking and the culinary aspect of what you do has always been present no matter who you're working with it's correct and uh well tell us about the greenleaf farms how how does that work it's a phenomenal project that's taking place in south memphis um, I'm from South Memphis. I grew up in South Memphis, so it's, it hits me right at the you know pit of my heart. Uh, there's a gentleman, Marlon Foster. I met him about 12 years ago when I was chef at St. Jude. I went down and did some volunteer work for, with him, and he was doing things with you know he grew up in the neighborhood as well, and uh, you know he decided that he wanted to do some things for the community and the community with the kids, and that's where it started at. And right now they have. Uh, over 300 kids that they're working with on a daily basis. Wow. And then the Greenleaf Learning Farm is a three-acre farm and orchard that is uh, producing produce uh, to some of the f- uh, families in the area and also supplying food to some of the uh, farmers' markets around the city. Uh, how did you guys get to know each other, Randy? Uh, we actually worked together. Um, Chef was invited to, uh, to kind of oversee a six-course meal for a group of people, 50 people out at Fayette Cares, a fundraiser for Fayette Cares, which is another social service organization out in Fayette County that helps out with people that, you know, need help with all kinds of different situations. Um, but he needed a kitchen uh, with this was at somebody's private home and to, and to try to do 50 meals in that situation. So we brought our big catering trailer out the there. One you do Memphis in May. Right. Uh, the exactly. Music Fest and all and um, so, and, and he, Put me to work. Well, in <laughs> fact, uh, we talked about you on the show the other day because uh, after the show about a week or so ago, he was talking about doing the six course dinner, and he was saying that you asked him and said, "Now, do you know how to break uh, um, asparagus?" And he said that to me. Do you know how to break asparagus? I said, "Break it. I know how to break a roux. I know how <laughs> <laughs> I can do that really easy. Uh, he said, no, he said, Ernest taught me that. He said, you take a, a piece of asparagus, raw asparagus, and you grab both ends and you start kind of bending it upwards. And where the soft part ends and the, the pulpy part starts, it'll snap right there, which is, you don't want to cook that anyway, but you get it from the store. They sell you that no, yeah, at, yeah. at an extra charge. <laughs> Uh, but I'd never heard that. And then uh, talk about the, the fresh uh, squash that you cook and then add ice to it. T- tell me and, and why you do that. You know, I, I think that was uh, necessity, a mother of invention. You know, uh, the squash wasn't cooking fast enough, and I wanted a different texture. I didn't want it cooked all the way down to where it's just mushy. Uh, mushy. Yeah. So you still uh, want some snap to it. Exactly. So, uh, Learn over the years that that heat, if I threw some ice in it, it just creates a steam. And then it gives it a different texture. It has that al dente uh, texture in the center of it. And it's just, uh, I don't know whether I was taught that. I just picked it up along the way because I wasn't satisfied with the end result of what we were doing. It is amazing, though, when you, 
what what you learn along the way and who teaches you this stuff because somebody said have you ever done this he go what how did you come up with that <laughs> you know but it's like you said it's the mother of invention how can i cool this down quickly and what will it be like if i do this mm-hmm. uh the uh but it is and it's like randy was saying when we were talking about that meal and, and all the things you did for the six course dinner to make everything come out each each course came out exactly right when it needed to come out and the only way you learn how to do that is doing it there is no book you can pick up that says okay this is how you do it and uh it was quite interesting i'll tell you um this was the first time randy and i had worked together and the other culinary team members it was the first time any of us had really worked together so it was really a unified force uh, for you know working in the same for the same goal and it was um from what i understand when you were reading that paper it said five years that's five years that we've been doing this event yeah usually it would be in collaboration with other chefs this time it was in collaboration with people that i had not worked with but had desire to be in the culinary field or like Randy already seasoned chef and it was not they recognized it as being the best of all the five years that we've done it so what what are what are the kids like so so many kids especially in the inner city you know they're coming home and they're eating fast food that somebody's picked up on the way home or they're eating canned stuff uh, you know tv dinners uh, something you put in the microwave that when you teach them about uh is it hard to get them to try some food like Brussels sprouts, squash, uh, beets, beets, you know? especially beets? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it is, you know, but what we want to do is we want to introduce them to something different. So Absolutely, we, yeah. we do things and, you know, we might do a bananas foster one day because we know where they, you know, that sugar thing. But yeah. then on the next day we might do some pickle beets. So we are introducing them all along the way to some of the things that they are not familiar with because that's where the healthy eating starts at. With me, when I was a kid, I had a, I had a garden, and I grew uh, radishes, and I grew carrots, and and I wasn't a big fan of radishes or carrots, but it was, they were easy to grow. And so, but I wanted to eat what I grew, so I'd bring them in and wash them up. We'd have them put them in the salad uh, for dinner. And I was so proud. So do you take the kids out to the to the orchard and to the garden and, and teach them about growing gardens? and, and, and the knowledge, yeah, Knowledge Quest is a, there's about seven different programs under that one roof. And one of them has to do, there's a nutritional uh, part to it, the, the gardening part to it. They have volunteers. And so we'll take the students to the garden and we'll talk about to them uh, some of the, things that are coming out of the garden, the best way to prepare them, and then we'll actually prepare some of them. But uh, there are about seven different programs. So the gardening is a community thing. So a lot of the food that's prepared in the garden is actually used to supplement the sure. community of the people. Well, so, I know that I've done stories on community gardens, uh, and, and so many of them in South Memphis, because that you don't have an empty lot, and everybody, and also they help guard the garden. Yes. Uh, and they all share in the, the bounty from the garden. Uh, but you see a lot more of those than you do anywhere else in Memphis. And then you got them out at the Agri Center where the people go out there and have really large plots. And they go out there every day and tend to those gardens. I think we'll see more and more of that with the cost of everything and the availability of it all, uh, which I think would be a great thing. Uh, we could uh, take a quick break. We're going to come right back, and I want to pick up more on just uh, how – 
this is really offering a lot of kids uh, a look at another way of life, which is sorely needed. That's the biggest problem facing restaurants today is they can't get good help. Absolutely. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. And welcome back. Uh, with me in the studio is uh, Randy Rye with the Dive Shop. And he brought along a, a compadre of his, uh, uh, Ernest Dickerson, who's been a chef in Memphis for many years, went to culinary school, uh, working with children now and in a great program, uh, teaching them about all kinds of stuff. Uh, and uh, we were just talking during the break about how when we all grew up, uh, we all had gardens, uh, but everybody did. And in where you live in South Memphis now, and I've done stories when I was at Fox with people that had their neighborhood gardens and they still do. I mean, you drive through South Memphis and, right. and uh, so many people that hear about crime in South Memphis, Southeast Memphis, North Memphis, there are bad neighborhoods and, and people that live in those areas know where they are. They just don't go there either. But then you have neighborhoods, all the lawns are manicured to the nth degree. They've got gardens, they, uh, their neighbors, they look out after each other, and 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 I tell them all when crime starts in those places, we had to go in there and cover them. I said, you start calling the police on these people. You don't have to give them your name. Start calling the police and make it uncomfortable. They'll get out of your neighborhood. Don't you leave because then you end up abandoning the neighborhood. But because uh, there there are some great neighborhoods in South Memphis, North Memphis, Southeast Memphis. Yeah, and you know it's all about. You said it correctly. You know we have to take an interest in the neighborhood in order for the neighborhood to change, and that's why I admire, you know, the fact that we are at Greenleaf Learning Farm, and it's a farm. It's an actual farm, almost three acres. But had it not been for the likes of Marlon Foster, he grew up in that neighborhood, and so just like a lot of us move out of the neighborhood for whatever reason, he was. You know, his steps were mandated that he stay in the neighborhood and do some things for the community. And it's been 25 years he's been working on these projects. And it reflects in the community. When you ride through it, you can see various plots of land where there's a number of different things that that he's established for the community and the kids as well. Well, it it takes time. People used to ask me all the time. I said, when we go on news stories, people come up to you and say, hey, come here, I got something for you. They said, how do you get to that point? I said, it takes years. It takes years of you being there and, and people trusting you. And that's exactly. the same thing with you and the, the people you're working with. Exactly. The neighborhood, they trust you. and But that is earned. It's, you, you can't give it to somebody. I, I can't pass it to anybody else. And so that's, uh, that's part of what you bring, plus the example you show by saying always doing the right thing. And, and you know, uh, you're a good example in so many different ways for the kids. Uh, wh- what's been the reaction from the kids uh, to the program? It's interesting. It's how you, you know, we present it in a lot of fun kind of ways, you know, and I'll, I'll tell them in a minute, you know, that I'm going to give you what I have to give you in terms of knowledge. And you can get a whole lot more if you ask questions and you should ask questions because you don't know if you'll end up cooking at the Waffle House or the White House. And so, you know, when you say something like that, you can see the, the look in their eyes, you know. And then I talk about, you know, why you pursue your NBA career or your rapper. You need to be able to eat. And people are eating all over the world. And it, the least you'll be able to do is get a job because there's a restaurant, two and three on it, some corners. So there are certain things we put in front of them to help motivate that thinking process about the better life that they can live 
from different perspectives. And uh, a lot of them, re- they're real re- receptive, but they're still kids. Yeah. You know, so getting them to stay focused long enough to actually start to retain that information, you know, yeah. it's almost like you have to meet them where they are because going back to what we were talking about earlier, that family structure, a lot of times get there was no male role model. Yeah. So there can be uh, some resentment there. Uh, and, and I don't experience that, but I know that a lot of these young men – they function from a place of emotion, and so you have to approach them in a different way and meet them where they are. Yeah, and it's the respect thing, too, is always right on their sleeve. I mean, what they say that you disrespect me for, I never thought of it as being disrespectful when I was a kid. Yeah. Somebody came out and said, move that box over there and get and hop to it. He went, okay. Uh-huh. But now if you raise your voice the least bit to them, you go, man, you're disrespecting me. And I'm going, good thing you didn't grow up where I did. Yeah. Man. Exactly. <laughs> So that's that's where people you know people mechanics come in on my part is yeah. being able to recognize that these children these young adults <clears throat> they might have and most of them do have things on their mind that don't really um, allow for a full focus and and uh, some of them need additional attention and some learn f- from watching some from you know hands on and just trying to figure out what makes each individual be the best that they can be and then meeting them at that point. And it works pretty good, you know, where, especially when you, food is like music. It's one of those kind of things that unite people. Uh, well, too, and I think this is true as well. You, you, you run into people that have an affinity for something, and it's like a light bulb goes off with them. I remember when I was uh, the director of development at the Orpheum, they bring these busloads of kids to the Orpheum the first time. And they walk through that lobby, and they've never been in a building like the Orpheum. Right. Right. Then they go into the main theater with all of that huge high ceiling and the chandeliers. And, and they just, I mean, they were just like, whoa. Now, some kids came in there, and it was just a building, and it was big. Other kids, I think, saw every single detail and said, I want to be able to do something I can uh, in my life that I could work in a place like this. So it's, it's really interesting. That's why you should expose kids to as much, many different things as you can because you never know what that one light bulb idea or, or realization is with each one of them because they've all got talent. We know God gave them all a talent. It's just helping them find out where it is. Exactly. And, and that's what they offer. There, there are several different programs with technology and photography and media, and these kids kind of rotate through these various programs. And so the, that which I do with the culinary arts is just a part of what's introduced to them in hopes that we can find that which sparks their interest and then it can change the course of their life where their career is concerned. So, If people want to get behind and help out, how, how can they help out? I think uh, if you start out with Knowledge Quest, that is the umbrella. And under that umbrella is uh, five of the programs, at least five other ones. They have a Greenleaf Learning Farm is one. And then I am the lead instructor for the J.U. Brawl Culinary Academy. And then so from there, once you get into that site, then you'll see those various other places. And Marlon Foster, and hopefully you'll get a chance to hear his story because that is really where it all initiated. I'd love to have him come on the show. And, yeah, uh, and, and that'll be his. great. And he'll be able to uh, enlighten you on some of the things that I'm not as um, able to articulate as well as he can because it's a phenomenal program, and it's uh, – it's a joy to be able to see and work with these individuals in that community that uh, I grew up in. You uh, graduated from the New England Culinary Institute. How did you even know that it existed? How did you get up to New England? Uh, 
you know, that's another one of the interesting stories of a traveler, a gypsy-like chef. And that's, that's kind of, I was in North Carolina, actually, and I wanted to come back to Memphis. But I knew that even with 25 years of experience coming back to Memphis, if I didn't have any paperwork, then that would be, uh, you know, just wasn't thinking it through. You know, Memphis just had a stigma where food and food service was more associated with servitude. It hadn't reached a level of professionalism. At, well, at there's a difference now. between a cook and a chef. And, and if you're a certified chef, then you demand more money. Right. And you get the money. Exactly. I but, wasn't certified at the time. Yeah. That's happened since. But I, I decided I wanted to be certified, and I um, decided I needed to go to school. Yeah. Before I came back to Memphis, I wanted some papers. Because I think it's hard to, to get across to kids so many times why going and getting certified in whatever it is. that You don't have to go and get a four-year degree. But even going and learning to be a, a mechanic, an electrician, a plumber, and you get uh, certified in that, you can make 100000 a year. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Now, back to the Earl Farrell for Memphis show, brought to you by Southern Security, your home team credit union, and by Kathy Thurman Edwards State Farm Insurance. Once again, Earl Farrell. Yeah, thank you very much, and welcome back. Uh, in studio with us today is Chef Ernest Dixon, who is a chef. He's also works uh, at Knowledge Quest Greenleaf Learning Center uh, and uh, is lead instructor for the J. Uberall Culinary Academy in all of it's designed to help uh, kids learn about uh, really the world, if, you, if you, you're honest about it, because it's showing them that there's a lot of different ways of making a living. But you, the, the first step is to learn how to learn. And I think a lot of kids have a problem with that. And, and that's correct. And that's one thing about that whole Knowledge Quest thing. They start out with the kids at a very young age. Um, they, there's a slogan that they use from the cradle to the career. So some of the kids out of that 300 that are there, some of them as young as five and six years old, and they got daycare programs, and they get introducing them to that whole concept of learning and being a part of the community early on. And um, my sous chef, Ms. Tamia Townsend, she was in the program when she was in ninth grade. Wow. And she, she's uh, now working with you. She's now working with the That's as, great. As, part, as the uh, you know junior instructor. So that just shows you what, the impact of that which is being done has. Uh, which is also important for the kids coming into the program. They see that it does lead someplace. Here's exactly. a good example. Exactly. Somebody. How do the kids come to the program? Um, there are a number of different ways. Uh, you start out, I think, the daycare, you know, and then introducing them to uh, things in the community. Marlon reaches out to the community where there's parents, you know, um, that have kids. Then it starts out with the parent, just rebuilding the community. And there are different programs that uh, different individuals over different programs that reach out throughout the community. They have yoga classes and they have Tai Chi and they have the gardening. And so there are a lot of things that they involve the kids in after school daycare. So there are a lot of things that are taking place on that campus where they come in contact with kids. And then now you can start to introduce them to some of the positive things that can happen uh, that, you know, would normally be in different other communities that they wouldn't normally um, be entitled to. Are there some Memphis-based corporations that are also supportive of you? Because I would think that would be a perfect thing for them to, to get involved with it and have 
field trips from your place to theirs and show them different career paths as well. And we have uh, we're participating next week in the, the Memphis Garden Walk. So there'll be some communities that will the come. The one in Midtown? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've it, been promoting that. Okay, yeah. it'll end up, um, they'll come through the Greenleaf Learning Farm. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so we'll be there. We'll be doing cooking demos and some things from our garden as well. But uh, back to the question you asked about some of the corporate support that they're getting throughout the community. You know, um, the Grizzlies have been involved. Uh, International Paper has been involved. But, you know, it's never enough when you have a community that's growing. Sure. And you need... Uh, you know, uh, as much influence from the community and that and outside of the community as you can get. So, uh, after 25 years, Marlin has made a tremendous gain in the community. And as I watch it grow, because when I, I said when I first came on board about 10 years ago, the garden was uh, I think it was they didn't even have their first uh, raised bed. I was just getting it in place. But now there's an aquaponics. Oh, wow. Uh, there is uh, agroponics, and these are things that uh, are in the process of being activated now. They're already there on the farm, but and so it's, it's a continued growth process, so there's always a need for additional support. Uh, yeah, the aquaponics, I did a story on um, a place, that a big greenhouse uh, operation, everything was grown in water. There was no dirt anywhere, and I was going, wow, this is amazing. So there's uh and it's cutting edge. I mean that's the other thing. They're finding out stuff that's uh, where it's it's all going, and how to get there. Uh, I'm gonna try to come out and uh, one day and and just check out the, the operation and uh, and uh, get a better idea. Do some interviews out there with some kids. I'm bring those interviews back and we'll play them because I think it would be a yeah, it's, inspiring. It's a beautiful longer. place. I mean, every anybody in Memphis should go by there and take a look at it. They've got two big greenhouses. Um, that have you know that they just recently put up and and so this is a year round endeavor. This is not something yeah. that's just going to happen during the the classic southern growing season type of thing. Well, not only that, uh, life goes on year round, and the kids need to st- keep learning. I've always said kids should be in school year round. The worst thing that happens, and it happened to me, every year I'd get out of school in May, we would go back until September. And all the stuff I learned that last year, it, it took two months to catch back up again. <laughs> Get back like, in that uh, groove you, again. you remember your multiple? Kid? No, <laughs> I, I ain't thought about them since then. <laughs> and so yeah. I think you just keep, keep educating them. I mean, uh, because otherwise, uh, especially at that age, as you, you were pointing out, their attention spans were pretty short. So the last thing you need is a lot of distractions. So it's a, it's a lot that goes on. It would be greatly appreciate it. If you did take the time to come out, it would be welcome. Uh, it's amazing. It's uh, just amazing I'll take see. some pictures and we'll put up on, on my Facebook page and kind of show them what's going on there. Uh, I do want to kind of change the subject. I'd like your input on this as well, because I think everybody has an opinion on it, on the, uh, the uh, submersive that was lost uh, last Sunday, as it turns out. And we were, they kept looking for it for the rest of the week. Uh, they're now saying that they probably uh, that was the it imploded the day that they lost all communication, uh, and then but the more we found out about it uh, that they bolt you in with seventeen bolts and there ain't no way out except when they you come back to the mothership and they unbolt it again. That would have been it for me. I just sit there going, <laughs> ah, that ain't happening. 
Yeah. I ain't get that to me. That'd be like, we're going to put you in the coffin. We're going to let you out later. <laughs> uh, we're going to screw the lid down and we'll come back and get you. I think Steve Connolly posted something about yeah. something they did way back in the day that well, was they did. similar they to put, that. They put him in a coffin. <laughs> and uh, I, that, that's something I just. Uh, uh, Before was, you go, we want you to sign this document. Yeah. I think that you had to sign three documents, <laughs> yes, which yes. in reality, none of those mean anything if you can show negligence on their part. And uh, it, the, the, some of the guy that did uh, actually did the movie uh, the Titanic, who's also the, the second, it's the second deepest dives that exist. How yeah. far he went down like five miles or so. Yeah. And he said that the thing that concerned him was uh, this the just the fiber product that it was made, the carbon um, fiber. Uh, yeah, traditionally he he worked with Anatoly Sigalovich off the Keldish with the two mirror submarines. They're the ones that did all the trips down to the Titanic for the movies and for the documentaries that Cameron did. Um, Valerie Moore, who is a longtime Memphis um, freelance writer, lives out in uh, Santa Fe now, it was a part of all those projects. She's a very close friend of mine. She was on our Titanic expedition. And um, the, um, you know, the thing that you have to know is that most of these deep water submersibles are actually titanium spheres because a spherical shape is more resistant to pressure, pressure than, than a tubular shape. Or even straight edge. I said yeah. uh, pressure does not like straight edges at no, all. Not at all. And so, you know, the, the idea of trying to use carbon fiber when the proven technology is Existence. And you already there. Yeah, yeah, there's already other people doing it. Now, I understand this guy was an innovator. He was trying to do new things that would forward exploration and those kinds of things. And and please don't lose sight of that we lost five lives. It's yeah, tragic. Absolutely, it is. The, the whole thing there, though, is that when you're in that world and you're trying to change the way people do things, the element of control over the risk is diminished significantly. Uh, and if what we're hearing about the, the lack of third-party validation, the lack of, of appropriate third-party testing and so forth like that is true. Now, you know, the other side of this, this particular vessel made numerous trips to the wreck successfully. This wasn't like this first time this no, thing had been in the water. No, they went like 50-something times. Yeah, it had been down there quite a bit, but <clears> nobody <throat> knows about what the stress. And that know, was with this kind of uh, it, uh, material. This repeated use of this yeah. material in this fashion, what's going to happen to it? Um, we do know that carbon fiber, if you've ever had anything to do, we use carbon fiber in free diving fins. Okay, so you're spending several hundred, you know, sometimes a thousand dollars or more for a pair of fins to go free dive, to go snorkeling in, right? Basically, long term breath hold type of stuff. Highly efficient, very lightweight, does a whole lot of things, but if you scratch that stuff significantly, it'll break off just like a piece of glass. Wow. So, what's so, the advantage? Is it weight? Is it lightweight, lighter? high strength? Okay. You know, I mean, it's very lightweight and it's very high strength provided it it stays in the form that it was designed to work with. So you run into this situation where, you know, best use of materials and that kind of thing is being called into question everywhere by very prominent people that know what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, I, I, like I say, Anatoly Sigalovich, 
Mirror submarine, put me in, bolted up, buddy. Let's go. I'm ready to go. Well, um, you can take my place. <laughs> yeah, new, new guy submarine, not so much. Yeah, you know, I, that's just. But just like in everything that we do, diving, there are calculated risk, and you have to mitigate the risk. That's why our programs are longer, and everything that we do is designed so that you know exactly what to do as things begin to go wrong. And we've got a lot that can happen in a hundred foot of water that you can get out of safely. And that's what they said about this. You're two and a half miles yeah. down. It, there's there's it, no. They said that there might have even they they had some indication that it was starting to crack uh, before because they said they did release some of the um, the weight bags, so they were starting to rise. Now how they know that I don't know yet, but they said that they can. They do know that they may have had a, an indication something was happening before it actually imploded. Yeah, I'm, in that world, so you, hole penetrations are obviously very difficult to manage. So you're not going to have like a handle that will drop the weight. What my thought process would be, and I don't know this, this is strictly conjecture, would be that you would have the system designed so that unless the system was live and active, the weights would be released. Uh, so the minute that you lose power, it, it would release. If I was going to design it, I would design it that when I lost the power, that's when I'd lose the ballast. But in this case, they say that they don't think they lost the power until it imploded because everything went, they had a ping they were emitting. They had a, uh, uh, another signal they were emitting that the ship was tracking them with and the, their texting, they could text back and forth. They didn't have that. So, they said everything stopped at the same time, yeah. and and that indicates that that's probably when the disaster took place. Yeah, and I, if they did have some knowledge of it, what it happened so fast. It was described by one gentleman who is a scientist over in England uh, this morning is that it happened in two nanoseconds. Yeah, yeah. And then he then he went on to say that it takes four nanoseconds for a, a nervous system transmission to happen that you would recognize that something was. So going they didn't on. even know what happened. Yeah, it's, it's just, just boom, black. Yeah, it's yeah, gone. Yeah. Um, little bit of comfort in that, some small comfort. But, well, because um, I kept thinking about them all down there, it, hypothermia setting in. They're in complete darkness, uh, no communication, knowing that if they can't get out, they know what the end was going to be, and that yeah. just uh, it didn't happen. Yeah. Any way you look at it, it breaks it breaks your heart. Uh, Chef Ernest Dixon, thank you so much for coming in. Good seeing you again. And I'm going to come down and see you guys. That would be great. And, uh, Randy, I know where you are. Absolutely. <laughs> right around the corner at 999 South Yates. If you guys want to find out about the underwater world, just come on over and see us. We and, know people in all the part of it. Uh, yeah. you know, again, I've got a I've got a two step connection to James Cameron, a one step connection to the Keldish and the Mir submarines. Um, we've been in this business for 63 years. We can take you safely on the adventure that you want to go on. And believe me, they have plan B, plan C, and plan D, yeah. <laughs> which is what I like. I've always got at least two or three other options yeah. if, uh, if A exactly. ain't working. We got, we got a way to get you back home safely every time. There you go. Thank you, guys. I I'll thank you, Earl Farrell, uh, once again for having us. It's been a pleasure. Randy Wright, I do appreciate that introduction and I look absolutely to you both at a later date absolutely Thanks thank you me. Ernest. all right we're gonna take a break uh, and then we'll come back and wrap things up
and welcome back on this uh, Friday afternoon. Don't forget the um, you got tickets. Uh, Matchbox Twenty is at the uh, Live at the Garden tomorrow night, and uh, it is a complete sellout. But uh, so if you do have tickets, make uh, uh, sure you get there early. Uh, the gates open at I think it's at five, and uh, then uh, uh, the uh, let me check that. I don't know if they're open. Five, maybe six, uh, and then uh, the first uh, you get a warm-up act that comes on. I think at seven fifty, and then after that, Matchbox Twenty will come on. And uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I know she emailed me this. So you got so many different ways you get information out, and he he can't remember where it is you got it. So uh, you're constantly going back and forth. Uh, but uh, here you go. Uh, Live at the Garden. will be uh date. Let's see. Oh, this is Friday. Uh, oh, no, that's the date of the, that's what I was going to say. I was under the impression this is Saturday night. It is June 24th. Uh, and the... Uh, gates, uh, gate information, uh, talks about where you get in. If it depends on what, uh, whether you get tables or if you're sitting in the lawn area. Uh, but, uh, the individual tickets, ticket holders, new security measures. They got everything here, but, uh, what time you can get in the gate. <laughs> That's all I was looking for. Uh, I mean, it's way back at the top. Uh, he usually, okay, it is, uh, the office, box office, that one opens at 5 o'clock. If you've got tickets, it will call. Otherwise, the gate's open at 6, and the show starts at 7.50. Uh, and if you can, uh, carpool it, because there's going to be so many people there, it's going to be really crowded. Also, I want to mention again that uh, the American Cancer Society is... Uh, is in desperate need of volunteer drivers in the Memphis area for its road recovery program, which provides cancer patients with free rides to their life-saving treatment. During the pandemic, it was necessary to suspend their transportation program for the safety of their cancer patients. Uh, but it's now been three years, and our organization is working hard to uh, find and rebuild this program, find drivers in the area. I mean, they lost so many drivers for a number of reasons, and they could really use the help recruit volunteers. Uh, what you do is contact Jeannie Natwick, N-A-T-W-I-C-K, and uh, her address is Jeannie, J-E-A-N-N-E, dot Natwick, N-A-T-W-I-C-K, at cancer.org. That's our show for today and the week. We'll be back on Monday. Have a safe weekend and a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>